uh, God's Learning Channel. And uh, we're meeting a lot of friends, of course, from uh, CBU that we've known for so long. Uh, uh, it's just a real privilege to be here again. Um, I don't know, Jim Jackson, he just seems to have so much energy right now. I think the Lord has just given him a fresh anointing that uh, is uh, strong and powerful, and it's exciting to see because these are the days that we need to be prepared. We need to have a deeper walk with the Lord. Well, my theme in this uh, second session that I have to share with you today is uh, Israel and the church in the prophetic future based on Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we're going to be studying Romans 9, 10, and 11 based on the fresh translation of the New Testament that we're working on at Gospel Research Foundation, the Hebrew Heritage Bible. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a key section that really deals, I believe, with prophecy and the prophetic future. Uh, sadly today, that most of the time when we talk about prophecy, a lot of people feel like the prophecy in the Bible primarily deals with foretelling or telling future events. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of times we get so involved in trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future that we forget about the present force of the kingdom now. And we have some that really want to take biblical prophecy and turn it into fortune-telling. Sometimes the small minds of theologians have tinkered with the great ideas of God and turned a prophetic awareness of what God is doing in the world now into just trying to foretell future events. Uh, I remember one time I had the uh, experience of taking a pastor of a pretty large church to uh, Israel and spending some time and doing some things with him and several other pastors. But sometimes have you ever been with somebody and you love them and you appreciate them, but they just don't get it. <laughs> and uh, it just doesn't seem, no matter what you say, or what you do, you know, you can take them all over Israel for two weeks and they can read the books. But somehow they've got their theology, they've got their mind made up. Don't bother me with the facts, I already know what I believe. But uh, I remember after this trip uh, hearing uh, this friend of mine, you know, preach a sermon. One of the things he said was, whatever God is going to do in the future, he's going to do it by and through the church. And when he said that, there was something that just gave me this sadness in my heart because I was thinking, how can we completely write Israel off? If we don't get Israel right, if we don't get the church right, we're going to miss what God is doing. And, you know, I begin to pray about that and uh, think about that. You know, the Lord just spoke to my heart. You know, this is a good man, but he does not understand God's heart for Israel. Now, I believe that every one of you are here by God's divine appointment, and I don't want you to miss it. I do not want it to ever be said of me or be said of anyone that's here you know, you just don't understand God's heart about Israel. 
When we read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and the way the Apostle Paul dealt with the relationship between the church and the people of Israel in the prophetic future, he has a great love for Israel. He has a great love for the people that have been called out of the heathen nations. I don't know, a lot of translations always translate Gentiles, the uh, ethnoi as Gentiles. Actually, in our translation, I'm translating it heathen because, you know, you really don't want to be a Gentile. That's really heathens in the Bible, pagans, idolaters. What do you want to do? You want to be engrafted into the people of God. And um, we ought to understand what God is doing. Now, this pastor friend of mine, although he loved Israel, could take groups to Israel and talk about things, he really had problems loving the Jewish people and understanding what God is doing in the church and in Israel. Because whatever God's going to do in the prophetic future, he's going to do through Israel and he's going to do it through the church. And the church in Israel have a major role to play in the prophetic future. Um, it's just the way that we kind of go back to our old default of replacement theology. He starts reading the Bible, and when we read about the people of Israel coming to the Red Sea, it's really the church there. And any time we read Israel in the Old Testament, we don't think about the historic people of Israel. We just automatically assume that that's the Southern Baptist Convention out there. And... No matter what we do, when we come to the end times, we're going to say, well, when it says Israel, like when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's got to be talking about the spiritual Israel. It's not the real physical Israel that he's talking about. And somehow we always have to replace the physical, historical people of Israel with the church. Kind of reminds me of uh, that story how we just go back, you know, you know, you know it's really the church instead of Israel. Kind of reminds me of that story of that guy that had just gotten married and, and he had a parrot, you know, and his uh, wife was coming down the first morning after their marriage. You know, that parrot looked at her and said, you're ugly. Oh, that made her mad. And she says, how can you let that parrot say something to me like that? So he looked at the parrot. He says, this is my wife. We're married. You can't tell her something like that. Well, you know, the next morning, she's coming down for breakfast, and the parrot looks over there, and he says, you're still ugly. <laughs> oh, she was just so furious. She couldn't stand it. And so finally, the husband, he says, you know, you can't talk to my wife that way. If you say that to her ever again, I'm going to cut your head off and feed you to the cat. Well, you know, the next morning she came down and that parrot looked at her. She looked at the parrot. The parrot looked at her. She looked at the parrot. And then the parrot said, you know. <laughs> and I'm afraid that when it comes to replacement theology, uh, these people that just don't get it, no matter what you tell them, most of the time they just want to look at it and say, you know, I've got it figured out. Don't bother me with what the Bible says. But I think we need to recreate that original life setting. We need to listen to the Apostle Paul as he speaks with such 
tremendous love for his people and as he looks to the prophetic future. Turn with me to Romans 9. We're going to read Romans 9, 4 through 5. Then we're going to read Romans 10, verse 4. And then we're going to go to Romans 11 and read verses 11 through 17. I'll kind of help you as we go through a few passages here. And I'm going to speak to you on four themes and then five definitions of words from the book of Romans and Paul's writings that I think will help us better understand Israel and the church in the prophetic future according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul writes in Romans 9, 4, they are the true Israelites, and to them belong the acceptance as children, the glorious divine presence, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the temple worship, and the promises. After all, the patriarchs and matriarchs belong to them, and so of their race, according to human ancestry, is the anointed one the one who is over all these blessings and everything else, that is, God himself, must be blessed forever. Amen. Now let's look at Romans 10.4. The King James Version translates this, For Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Uh, Here's the way the Hebrew Heritage Translation of the Bible takes it. Because the goal of the Torah finds consummation in the Anointed One so that everyone who believes may experience the righteous way of living. One more time. Want to hear that one more time? Because the goal of the Torah finds consummation in the anointed one so that everyone who believes may experience the righteous way of living. See, there's a goal, there's a purpose for the law. And we really shouldn't call it law, we should call it Torah. And it's finding consummation in our Lord Yeshua, the anointed one, the Messiah, I don't know, sometimes I think we use the word Messiah so much, it kind of loses its meaning. I really think it's better to say the anointed one, because when, when are you operating in the anointing? That's, that's what the anointed one is. Jesus is the anointed one that brings the deliverance. And he, when we really come to faith, that's to lead us to a way of righteousness. Yes, we're made righteous. We are forgiven of all our wrongdoings, but we have life transformation. And we're living a new life. So the goal of Torah finds consummation in the anointed one. Uh, Now let's go over to Romans chapter 11. And we are going to start in verse 11. So, you know, I'm I'm just going to read a couple of verses here from the first verse. First two verses in Romans 11. And then we'll go down to verse 11. Then I must ask... Has God rejected his people? Well, you know, my friend, the pastor, I think, would have to say, yes, he has. 
What does Paul say? Has God rejected his people? God forbid! After all, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Avraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whose destiny as his own he appointed before time. I think that's, that really captures our, the Greek text. God has not rejected his people whose destiny is his own. He appointed before time. Of course, the apostle goes on and he talks about how God is working in Israel and he's preserved a remnant of people that believe and have faith. Let's go down to verse 11. So next I must ask, have they stumbled? Here's the people of Israel, those who are not believing in Jesus. Have they stumbled so as to fall into ruin without hope? God forbid that because of their lapse, Salvation has been given unto the heathens for the purpose of engendering their jealousy. Now, if their fall caused spiritual enrichment for the peoples of the world and their loss produced divine riches for the heathens, how much more then will their full inclusion cause even greater enrichment? How many of you are looking for that day? That's what we're heading to right now. That's what's happening. That's what this conference is about. Verse 13. But now I speak to you who come from among the heathen peoples. After all, I'm an apostle for the heathens. And I stress the magnitude of my ministry in order that I might provoke to jealousy some from among my own people and might save some of them. For if turning them away for a time means the reconciliation of the world, what then will the gathering of them back together mean but life from the dead? Moreover, if the dough given as a first fruit offering is holy, so also is the lump. So if the root is holy, so also are the branches. But if some of the natural branches were pruned away so that you, even though you are a wild olive shoot, could be grafted in among them and become a partaker with them, sharing the nourishment of the root of the olive tree, even so, you must be exceptionally cautious not to become arrogant over the natural branches." But if you do become proud, remember that it is not you that gives life to the root, but rather it is the root that nourishes you. Let's direct our hearts and minds to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, how we thank you for this great conference on the roots of our faith, on Israel and the church and prophecy as we gather together to share with one another and to study your word. I pray the day as we study the life and teachings of Paul that your Holy Spirit would guide us, direct us, give us fresh insight and help us understand better what is your heart concerning Israel today. In thy name we pray. Amen. What is a prophet? We use the word Navi in Hebrew, which means someone who speaks the word of God. He's really more someone who tells God's word, speaks forth 
the will and purpose of God rather than a prophet who foretells the future. As a matter of fact, another name for prophet in the Hebrew Bible is a Jose. Jose means to see. One of my favorite verses of the Bible is Psalm 27, 4, which says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, if you look at that word, that verse in Hebrew, it says, There's that word, to behold. To behold the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple. The Jose is not one that is looking into the future to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. The Jose is one who beholds the face of the Lord and can declare the will of God to the people of God. The prophet is one that is close to God and hears God's message. He foretells, he shares what is the heart of God concerning the matter. He is a man or a woman who, in a vision of God, can also see a vision of the people and recognize their spiritual needs. When the prophet of God speaks forth the word of God, the future depends on how the people respond. If the people responded one way, that may change and alter the future and the final outcome. I don't know, we kind of see that. It's almost humorous when we read about Jonah in the Bible, how he prophesied that Nineveh would fall and all the people would be burned. Here are the enemies of Israel. You know, he's so disappointed when they all repent. And uh, and when they repent, they're not destroyed. And he complains to God about it. But you see, he had a vision of God. He spoke the word to the people, and the people responded. I want us to hear the voice of the Lord today. I want us to be sensitive to the ways of God and what he is doing in this very important hour. I think that we need more than anything else in the body of Christ, a fresh vision of the Lord. We need to see him more clearly and hear his word so that we'll be able to communicate that more effectively. I think that's really one of the main reasons that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Here he's writing to a church that he had never been to, that he didn't establish, a church that was made up of both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers, and there were some frictions, there were some misunderstandings. He told them that he longed to go there so that he could impart some spiritual gift to them. And he wanted to go and share the gospel, the message, the revealed word of God that had come to him. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes when we read that, that Paul is called a doulos. Some people say he's a servant or he's a slave of Jesus Christ. You know, another way to look at that is to say a doulos is a prophet. Because a doulos, a prophet, a slave of God is the one that hears God's word and declares it to the people. And he said, I am not ashamed of this message, for it is a power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first, but also for the Greek. Sometimes I wish I could have a cassette recording of Paul reading this letter. You know, I wonder if he would have said it, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or maybe he would have said, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. I know in his emphasis, he is saying that this message is for all people. 
But he never wanted to minimize the importance of his own people. I wrote a book, Jesus the Jewish Theologian. I found that a lot of people were upset with me because they felt like that, you know, Jesus was a Christian, you know, and all of his disciples were Christians. I remember talking about that one time a guy told me that. He says, all the disciples were Christians except one, Judas, and he was the Jew, you know. Bad attitude, bad attitude. Well, you know, you're trying to establish the Jewish roots of our Lord, and, you know, that's hard for people to accept. But then I had to write the sequel to the book, Paul the Jewish Theologian. Oh, no. Now, we knew that Paul was the first Christian. I mean, he had that vision on the road to Damascus, and he was converted to Christianity. He said, I used to be a Pharisee, and now that I accepted Christ, I'm a Christian. Did you ever really listen to what Paul says and how he describes himself? When he's arrested on the Temple Mount in Acts chapter 22, and he goes before the people, he tells them that I am a Pharisee. When he is brought before the council, and he realizes that part of them are Pharisees, part of them are Sadducees, he stands before them and says, I am a Baptist. That's what I was taught, you know. Uh, I was always taught that, you know, Paul was a Baptist preacher and Silas was the Baptist song director, you know, and that's kind of like we'd have a revival in the spring, you know, and you'd have the song director that would come to lead the music and the evangelist, and, you know, we just kind of put it all over there, Baptist evangelist Paul and Silas the song leader, you know. Kind of reminds me of that preacher who's just preaching along, preaching along, he notices somebody's asleep, so he's just looks at the song leader and says, go over there and wake that guy up. Song leader's kind of upset, looks at him and said, you go wake him up, you put him to sleep. You know? so, uh, but you know, when you look at Paul, after three missionary journeys, what does he say? I am a Pharisee. What we hear preached and taught most about Paul in our pulpits is that he was a Roman citizen, he was born in Tarsus. Uh, certainly that's important because that was on the Sindus River, a place of Stoic philosophy. Strabo, the famous geographer, said that in this city of Tarsus there were Greek philosophers, Epicureans, and it excelled even Alexandria in its uh, intellectual exchange and debate. And so scholars want to say, well, Paul was really pretty much of a Greek philosopher. But, you know, they never even complete the whole verse. You know, Paul says, I was born in Tarsus, but I grew up in Jerusalem. I'd like to ask you today, what's more important, where you're born or where you grow up? As a matter of fact, he makes another step after he says, I grew up in Jerusalem. What did he say? I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. This is the grandson of Hillel. He's telling us our education. What would you think if I told you I was born in Germany, but I grew up in New York and have a PhD from New York City University? Would you go back and talk about Munich and how I was a German? I, I, mean, I might not even be able to speak a word of German. But the way that we teach and preach about Paul is that he's really a Hellenized Jew and very close to Greek philosophy. 
a dominant view we see being taken in scholarship today is maybe to relate him to Gnosticism or the Hellenistic Greek mystery religions. Elaine Pagels at Harvard University wrote the book Paul the Gnostic. And of course, she is in some ways talking about the Gnostics' interpretation of Paul, but it really moves in that direction that Paul himself was a Gnostic. How does Paul describe himself? In Philippians chapter 3, uh, in his self-description, he says that I am a Jew born uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As a matter of fact, he even says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I, know, I think we should really look at that in the Greek text. Hebraeus ex Hebraeon. A Hebrew, an Ivri, from among the Hebrews. You know what that really means? He's telling us his language. Now, Paul wrote epistles in Greek. Well, if he knew Greek, he couldn't have known Hebrew. Hey, you know, there are some people in the world that know more than one language. I know it's hard for us to believe that in, in uh, America sometimes. But, uh, you know, Paul could write Greek like, you know, his mother language. He knew Greek very well. But there's a lot of indications of how well he knew Hebrew. And when he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I think this has to deal with his language background, what language they spoke at home. And I think we can find evidence that he spoke Hebrew. Kind of uh, surprised me one time just reading through this time that he's arrested in Acts. And the tribune asked him when Paul speaks to him, do you speak Greek? Made me think that, you know, maybe Paul spoke Greek with a little bit of an accent. You know, sometimes somebody speaks to me in English. They may have an accent from another country. And I wonder, well, you know, how well do they speak English? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes people pretend that they know more of the language than they do. I remember one time being in the Far East and, you know, the light bulb burned out in my hotel room. I knew very, not very many people spoke English, so I called the front desk. I said, do you speak English? They said, oh, yes, 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 yes. I said, well, the, the light bulb burned out. Could you bring me a light bulb? Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, just, you know, about five minutes later, somebody showed up with a ham and cheese sandwich, you know. <laughs> so, I thought, well, I can eat this in the dark, I guess, you know. Um, but, you know, they didn't quite understand. Sometimes people, you know, don't understand. But I think Paul knew Greek very well. But maybe he spoke with a slight accent. Or at least the tribune here that's arresting him has to ask him about this. But one thing is so clear is that when he went out to the temple mount and he began to speak to the crowds, the Bible says that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. And here, this language in the Greek text is uh, dialecto hebraidi, which means the Hebrew dialect. Now, I don't know how many of you have the New International Version. Uh, I hate to say it, but, you know, really missed it here. Because there are some scholars that claim that when the book of Acts or the text in the New Testament says Hebrew, it really means Aramaic. So, in the New International Perversion, in this case, I guess I'll say, uh, they translated, he spoke to them in Aramaic. I don't know, there are some translations may say the Jewish language. Let me tell you, that is absolutely ridiculous. First of all, the Hebrew, the Greek text says it was Hebrew. Secondly, Aramaic was widely spoken to the East. I don't think that would have made anybody in the crowd become quiet. Because everybody speaks Aramaic. If he had spoken Greek, 
it would have made the crowd silent. But this crowd is kind of riled up. They're excited. What does Paul do? When he speaks Hebrew, they hear a Hebrew that has no accent. They hear a Hebrew that is spoken from someone that's a real Yerushalmi. This is somebody that grew up here in Jerusalem and studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And we better listen to what he has to say. And then he begins to tell about his background and his experience. But we have bought a cell of goods that is wrong, a wrong theology that has impacted the church that Paul was uh, learned in Greek philosophy. Uh, Martin Hingle, a very famous Jewish scholar, actually has attacked this view. In his book, The Pre-Christian Paul, he noted this, Only from Luke, as the writer of Acts, do we learn that Paul came from Tarsus, the capital of Cilicia, and that he was a citizen of both Tarsus and Rome. Paul, the author of the letters, no longer thinks this part of his past worth mentioning. It seems to him to be much more remote than his time as a Pharisee in Palestine. I think that's pretty perceptive. How does Paul present himself? Philippians, that's what he wrote about himself. I'm a Pharisee. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And these are some things that he is very, very proud of. He says, these are things I could boast in the flesh. But he says, even the things I'm the most proud of, I consider as nothing, as refuge, as dung, in comparison to knowing the resurrection power of Christ. Well, when we begin to look at this Jewish theologian, this Jewish rabbi who loved the heathen peoples of the world, who loved people who didn't have faith in the one God of Israel, he was one that had studied the prophets, and he realized that the goal of the Hebrew prophets, like in Isaiah, is that Israel would be a light to the nations. Or he would read in Zechariah and the prophets how during the Feast of Tabernacles, the non-Jew will take the Jewish person by their coat and say, let us go up and worship the Lord in Jerusalem together. And he could see this vision of God in the prophetic future of all peoples worshiping. As the prophet Isaiah said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And Paul could see this in the future. But he didn't know exactly how that was going to work out until he had this dramatic call and experience on the road to Damascus. I don't want to minimize how, what a tremendous change that was in his life. Because before that vision on the road to Damascus, he had persecuted the church, feeling like he was doing something to honor and help God. This was his zeal as a persecutor of the church. You know, one thing I would like to bring out, though, when we look at Paul, the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, is that he's a little bit different from some of the other Pharisees we have in the Bible. And most people feel like, well, that must have been what all the Pharisees did. Did you ever stop to think what the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 5 about the leader of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, Paul's teacher? Uh, the Sadducees, who are the priests, went to arrest the apostles. And when they go to arrest them, they were instructed, hey, now when you arrest those guys, don't use force. 
This is what Acts 4.26 says. If you use force, the common people will stone you. I don't know what they did when they arrested them. Maybe they got their guns out, you know, like they used to do in the old movies. And maybe they had to put it under their coat or something, you know. But the, the common people, most of them in Jerusalem at that time, if they saw that the Sadducees, the guards closely associated with the Romans, were being rough with the apostles, they would actually stone them. And when they come before the council and they're being accused, what does Gamaliel say? Well, you guys are bringing some accusations against them, but you know, we've had a lot of false messiahs and messianic movements like Thutis and others. What if this is of God? Who are we to fight against God? Now, this is the leader of the Pharisees. Uh, you ever stop to think what happened in Acts 23 when Paul says, I am a Pharisee. What do all the Pharisees say? We find nothing wrong with this man. Why are you Sadducees persecuting him? Luke 13, 31 tells us that the Pharisees actually went to warn Jesus that Herod Antipas tried to kill him. It's funny, I tell that to people, they don't even believe that's in the Bible. But you know, there's some good Pharisees and there's some bad Pharisees, you know. There's some good Christians and there's some bad Christians. And when we start reading the life and teachings of the Apostle Paul, he was proud of his Pharisaic heritage. And when he started writing Romans 9, 10, and 11, this church that he's introducing himself to, he writes about the church. He writes about Israel. He looks to the prophetic future. The very first thing I believe that we have to recognize and understand in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that when he writes in Romans 9 4 and he says they are the Israelites these are I even try to stress it I put this in square brackets but I say they are the true Israelites because a lot of us are trying to say that we are Israel and we have replaced them actually he even uses the present tense the present active indicative this is something that is a reality to him what's my first point when I talk about Israel and the church and the prophetic future. Number one, let Israel be Israel. When you read the Bible, you read the Old Testament, don't just assume that you're Israel. Don't assume that place. Let Israel be Israel. Study the way that God worked in history to establish his covenant with his people. You know, God makes those covenants. It's called a Brit Olam. An everlasting covenant. God doesn't break his word to Israel. He's not going to break his word to the church. But when we read Israel in the Bible, let it be Israel. Now, I think we are blessed when we read how Apostle Paul deals with this because we who are no people without a background, without uh, understanding the nature of God, have been engrafted in. And he calls us adopted sons and daughters. How many of you are glad that you're a son and a daughter? You know, it doesn't matter whether you're adopted or not. You are a child of God. You have an identity in the Lord. And you have a rich heritage. Uh, we read uh, in Hebrews how that, you know, we experience those things in a real way. But if we experience the crossing of the Red Sea by faith, we don't and we cannot deny the fact that these are historical Jewish people that God is working with in history. And we need to affirm their place. This is one of the problems I have just as a biblical scholar sometimes when we 
uh, deal so much with topology and we just try to make everything a symbol of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, we kind of deny the literal application of the tabernacle or literal application of the menorah or all these things in the life of Israel. I think first and foremost, we have to affirm that God is working through those things in the historic Israel, and we've got to let Israel be Israel in the Bible. The second point I want to make when I talk about the church in Israel in the prophetic future in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that we have to let the church be the church. Because the church has a role to play in the prophetic future. And Paul is very excited about his call as a Pharisee to the heathen nations of the world. And he proclaims salvation. He proclaims the kingdom of God. Oh, I know I love to study what Paul himself writes about himself in his letters and especially Romans. But, you know, you've got to see everything. You ever look in the book of Acts how Luke, who was a traveling companion of Paul, describes him. You know, Luke starts out the book of Acts with the kingdom of God. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? What's the last mention we have of the Apostle Paul? He's in prison in the book of Acts and he's talking, teaching to everyone that comes concerning the kingdom of God. Paul had an understanding that God is working among the non-Jewish people and this is a cause for great celebration. He says that a blindness has come over a part of Israel for a time in order that the full number of Gentiles might be brought in. I don't know, we have a similar uh, phrase used in the book of Genesis about the sins of the Amorites, which hadn't reached their fulfillment until Israel could go and inherit the land of Canaan. I think that that time is coming to an end very quickly. And I think that's one of the reasons that God is restoring the Jewish roots to the church today. God wants you to understand his heart about Israel. This is very important. Sadly, when we look at church history and we see the way that the church has rejected Israel and the way that the church has persecuted Israel, I don't know, I wonder if in Nazi Germany, if uh, they would have been able to succeed if there was a conference like this. I wonder if people loved the Bible and they loved the Jewish people, if the Nazis would have had the type of success. I really believe that if Christians had really acknowledged the roots relatedness to the historic people of Israel, and if they would have let Israel be Israel and the church be the church and look at God's higher plan in the future, that it might have prevented the Holocaust. Sadly, when I study the history of the Holocaust, sometimes I teach some courses on this, um, you know, I just have to come to the point that I must acknowledge and confess that Christian theology played a significant role in the persecution of the Jewish people in the Third Reich and even to the point of sending them on the trains to Auschwitz. And I'm a little concerned that as Christians we don't really deal with this. You see, a lot of times we look at this question that anti-Semitism is really a Jewish problem. 
Let me tell you, it's not a Jewish problem, it's a Christian problem. We as Christians need to deal with hatred in our own ranks. We need to deal with the anti-Judaism and the feelings of animosity against Israel. This is a Christian problem. And I don't know, I think it's so exciting that in these days, in this prophetic time, that God is restoring something in our lives and in our hearts. You see, first of all, our hearts get touched, don't they? All of a sudden, you go to Israel, you love Israel. You begin to love the Jewish people. But you know, we still have those old replacement theology ideas. We still have our old theology intact. We still believe exactly the same we always believed. I want to tell you what we've got to do. We've got to come back to the Bible. We've got to study it more. We've got to immerse ourselves in the world of the Bible. And yes, uh, one area of my own work, Bible translation, I feel like that sometimes uh, the wrong theology has impacted the English translations of the Bible. For Christ is the end of the law. Have you ever thought how that has impacted the church? How that has impacted uh, Christians? You know, the Greek word for end is telos. It's seldom translated end. (laughs) Most of the time in Greek it means purpose, aim, goal. Uh, read Romans 3.31. Matter of fact, I'd like to read this, uh, Romans 3.31, in our translation of the uh, Bible. Um, you know, people have to cancel uh, Romans 3.31 to translate that. Christ is the end of the law. Paul says, do we cancel the Torah by this faith? God forbid! On the contrary, we interpret the Torah properly, placing it on a firmer footing. Now, in Greek, the word is estemi, which means to stand. In Hebrew, it's kiem, which means cause to stand. By faith, you place the Torah on a firmer footing. You're not canceling the Torah. Christ is not the end of the Torah. As a matter of fact, when we translate it the end of the Torah, we probably misunderstood everything that Paul's saying. What is the goal of the Torah, according to Paul? What is the goal of the Torah in Romans 9, 10, and 11? Get this. The goal of the Torah is for us heathens to come to faith in the God of Israel through Jesus Christ. And he is preaching the inclusion of the Gentiles. He's saying that we are grafted in. I like the way that George Howard, a New Testament scholar, wrote about this in the Journal of Biblical Literature. Uh, Howard wrote, Christ is the goal of the law to everyone who believes because the ultimate goal of the law is that all nations are to be blessed in Abraham. The passage is one of Paul's greatest statements concerning his doctrine of the inclusion of the Gentiles. In fact, it is becoming increasingly clear that this doctrine permeates the entirety of his letter to the Romans. Paul was talking about how that Abraham, as someone that coming from a pagan background, not knowing the true God of Israel, came to special revelation knowledge of who God really is. He believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. And he is the example for all of us that we come to God by faith in Christ our Lord. So Christ The Messiah, the anointed one, he is the consummation of the law. That's the goal, the 
desire that God always had to everyone that believes. Now think about how wrong we've got it. We cancel Romans 3.31 by translating Christ as the end of the law. Now you can't tell me that theologians didn't have their theology preconceived ideas when they translate it that way. Because in my opinion, that's really not what the Greek says. It's just a bad translation of the Greek. And yet what we have in most of our translations is we kind of repeat them. We kind of copy from each other translations. We kind of collate them together. Now, uh, you've got to forgive me. You know, I'm, I am working on a Bible translation. Sometimes I get a little worked up about this. Uh, the, the one thing I don't want to sound like is like I'm, I'm arrogant or, you know, I'm the only one that has, knows this about the Bible. You know, there's a lot of people that know this. A lot of people that are writing this. I'm not the first one to say that telos is the goal of the Torah. Uh, and I don't want to say that your Bible isn't trustworthy or there aren't good translations. You know, sometimes people ask me, well, what translation should I use? Well, I say, well, what one are you using? Maybe you ought to use the one you've got. You know, the real problem is we don't use the Bibles we have. You know, uh, you know, study the Bible you've got. Use it. You know, uh, realizing that, you know, every goal of translation is a little different. You know, the New American Standard Version is probably the most literal translation ever met. If you want to get something real literal, use the New American Standard Version. After that, maybe the RSV. King James is, you know, a good translation for its time. But, uh, you know, the NIV is a little freer, you know. It's kind of like a paraphrase in some points, you know. Uh, but, you know, the Living Bible, that might be a good one. The New Living Bible, those are some things you can get from reading. Read several different Bible translations. But, you know, pray for us for the Hebrew Heritage translation of the Bible because, you know, I don't think we have uh, a work in the Bible that tries to bring out the Hebraic background, the Hebraic context. And I believe that this is going to have a significant impact on the church. And it's having a great impact on my own life and my own experience uh, because I really want to understand this better. I don't know, uh, I've spent uh, several years actually working with Romans, uh, probably spent more time translating it than any other parts of the Bible, even though it's just 16 chapters. And I have seen over and over again in the translations how that sometimes our anti-Jewish ideas, our views against the Torah have influence the way that the Bible has been translated. I'm exciting today that the Holy Spirit is bringing fresh light and we're beginning to understand this better. So number one, we've got to let Israel be Israel. We've got to let the church be the church. Number three, I want to say is we've got to let God be God. Because we have a lot of prophecy and teachings where we kind of explain everything that God's going to do in the prophetic future. I'll tell you one thing. God is a God of surprises. I think he's just going to do it differently than what we think just to be God and who he is. And uh, we ought to realize that while we can study eschatology, we can study the book of Revelation. I mean, I've translated the book of Revelation now, and I've worked a lot with it. I've taught courses on it. But you know, as much as I love the book of Revelation and how much I study it, I always feel like there are so many things that are left open to God. I don't know, I used to be, uh, you know, so strong in my premillennial, dispensationalist, pre-tribulation, rapture theology. I mean, I kind of like that position. I hope they're right, you know. <laughs> I want to be raptured out of here before things get bad, you know. 
But you know, I, I met Corey Tenboom one time. Some of you may have known her, who was in the concentration camps with Jewish people and Christians who were suffering for their faith. And I remember one time she looked at me, and I don't know when Corey Tenboom would look at you. Those of you that may have been able to meet her, but you know, she just had a way of looking right through you, and she would just say. How dare you have a theology that when people are suffering, God is going to take all of the Christians, people that could give comfort to suffering humanity. That makes very good sense. And you know, there's some scriptural support for the post-tribulation view. And I'd, I want to tell you, when we let God be God, you better take this seriously that, you know, you may not be raptured out. You better, you might need to be prepared spiritually to face that. And we need to seek the face of the Lord and be ready. I think that God's going to do it his way. <laughs> and we're going to have to stand back and see it. Uh, a famous uh, biblical scholar George Eldon Ladd, who taught at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote this about the book of Romans. He said, the burning question among Jewish Christians was, has God rejected his people? Paul devoted three whole chapters to this problem and concluded that finally, the natural branches, the Jewish people which had been broken off, the olive tree, the people of God, would be grafted back into the tree so that all Israel will be saved. It is difficult to interpret these three chapters symbolically of the church, the spiritual Israel. They teach that the literal Israel is yet to be included in the spiritual Israel. I think that's pretty well said. Something to really make us think, well, how can that happen? What if they haven't believed just like us? Or what if they didn't join the church? You know, what does Paul say? Oh, don't you hate it when somebody does sometimes? What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, well, you know, it's just a mystery of God. <laughs> now, we theologians, Bible scholars, we hate that, you know, because we have to explain every mystery. You know, people look at me, I'm a Bible scholar, no Greek in here, I'm supposed to know everything. You know, you, you know the difference between a, a professor in the university and a normal person, you know? You ask a normal person a question, they don't know, they just say, I don't know. You ask the college professor, and he says, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Mystery. Mystery of God. If we get Israel right, we understand the heart of God about Israel, we can say, let Israel be Israel. It's okay. Paul said it. Let the church be the church. It's okay. I want to be ready for whatever God has for the church. I'm going to be ready. I want to prepare myself now. That's why you're here. You know, God is working miracles in your life right now. Things have been impossible are going to be possible now. This is a turning point, this conference in your life. God is working in your life right now. And you're going to let God be God. But when it comes to the final salvation and all of the questions about eschatology and everything that's going to happen and whether this is going to happen or that's going to happen, let's let God be God. Because he is going to do it his way. 
And my fourth point that I'm making today in this is we are called to seek first the kingdom of heaven. If we let God be God, then we must seek first the kingdom of heaven. How do we really see that happen? By putting the teachings of Jesus into operation. You know, the most eschatological text in all of the Gospels is probably Matthew 25, 31, where Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes with the glory of the angels and the Father, and he'll sit on that throne, and he'll begin to divide the sheep and the goats. Remember what he's going to say? Well, when I was hungry, you fed me. When... I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. What is that all about? Is that about the end times? Uh, well, you know, Israel was founded in 1948. We've got a generation before Jesus is coming back. You know, I've got about, you know, 10 copies somebody gave me of this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. In fact, I've got a copy of 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. Not everybody knew that there was a sequel to that book. Uh, you know, sometimes people just never get it right, do they? Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. So you've got to be ready at all times. What do you do to be ready? Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I like rabbi stories. You know, there's a story of... Uh, a rabbi, Eliezer, who's walking along and he looks at his disciples and he tells them, repent one day before you die. And his disciples, you can imagine what they're thinking. They say, well, rabbi, that's good advice, but how do we know the day we're going to die so that we can repent the day before? And the rabbi looked at them and said, spend all your days in repentance and then you'll be ready. What do we really need to know about the second coming of Jesus? Be prepared. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. And that's where I think we're really challenged today. I'm going to go over some definitions that I think are really important for Romans and the foundation of our faith. Uh, definition number one is for the people of God. You know, Paul uses... Uh, this term Israel, I really believe that most of the time when he's talking about Israel, he's talking about physical Israel. Uh, but when he talks about the people of God, he sees that somehow in the prophetic future, the people of God is going to include both Israel, according to the flesh, and the church. And that God is working together. I wish that somehow we could have a better understanding of Israel and the church. You know, I try to do small things in my uh, career as a teacher. You know, I try to get my students to go to a synagogue on Friday night. Take them maybe to the Jewish community when there's a commemoration of the Holocaust. Uh, maybe just to go there and say, you know, we share in some of the suffering that you're going through. Of course, I try to get them to go to Israel. But there are things I try to do. Get them to go to a Jewish museum. What do we do in our community to try to build bridges of understanding? Well, Christians and Jews are going to disagree about a lot of things. Uh, one might vote for a Democrat. One might vote for a Republican. Big deal. There's a lot that brings us together with common cause 
And, uh, you know, God loves Democrats. God loves Republicans. You know, I just can't believe he loves all the diversity. You know, wouldn't it be boring if we were all the same? And one thing you find in Judaism is they love debate and interaction. But let's have a vision for all of God's people. And especially to understand his heart concerning Israel. Number two, I want us to have a better understanding of Torah. When Paul says that the goal of the Torah is the anointed one. He's not talking about that in the sense that it's the law, the Old Testament. But this is the revelation of God himself. And we need to have a better understanding of Torah as divine directions for living. How to live our lives that are pleasing to God. I don't know, I wish we could just eliminate this term Torah, I mean this term law from our vocabulary. Get it out of our Bible translations. Do something to make us really think about this. This isn't a legal code. This isn't something that you take for a driving test or, you know, the stop signs and no parking here. This isn't a bunch of laws and a legal code. This is a way of life. This is something that you're a disciple of. You're going to learn the ways of God by studying the Torah. I don't know, I've just got to digress here a minute. You know, I teach a class called Theophanies in the Hebrew Bible. And we go back in this class and we take every passage of the Bible where God is revealing himself. And we study it in Hebrew. We try to translate it and see how God is revealing himself. And I'm just overwhelmed every time I teach this class we go over it and I'm so excited you know for our Bible translation because we're going to try to bring these nuances out in the Bible translations but how many times in the Torah God is revealing himself with this word Torah or you know uh, the favorite term in the Hebrew Bible is venera Adonai love God revealed himself I mean, even when Abraham is offering Isaac on the altar, most of our translations say that this is the place that he provided the lamb. Actually, the word provide there is a word for see. And when you say the place that it will be provided, probably could be translated. In fact, I found some modern Jewish English translations that do translate it this way. That is a place where God will reveal himself where you will have a vision of God. I think that in the Torah, God is very interested in revealing who he is, the character of God. We see the vision that Moses has on Mount Sinai. What is it? He's Hanun, Rachum, Erech, Apaim, Rav, Chesed, Vaymet. He's full of grace and truth and mercy. He's forgiving generations, people to the fourth, fifth generations. Why don't we see the loving kindness of God in the Hebrew Bible? Why don't we see the kingdom of God being proclaimed in the Hebrew Bible? We've got to see the continuity. It's all revealed in Torah. How we've got to reinterpret and understand that word. The third word that I want us to look at and define and really understand better in this passage in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the word faith, to believe in the Lord. Um, when I've been taught about faith growing up, most of the time it's that I accept something, I believe something. You tell me and I believe it. I want to stress that when we talk about faith in Hebrew, it's usually something that you do and you act on. It's something that you live out. It's true you're believing it, but if you believe it, you have to do something about it. You can't just believe it in your mind. 
Emunah, a lot of times in Hebrew, means faithfulness. It means perseverance. It means strong-willed determination, unrelenting resolve, the never-give-up type of tenacity, that no matter what happens, you've got the raw nerve to see something to completion. That's what faith is all about in the Bible. I love the story that we tell of the battle of Amalek where Moses is commanded to take his rod, his staff, and hold it up. As long as he holds the staff steady, what happens? Israel prevails. But as soon as he starts lowering it, then Amalek prevails. What happened? We see that Aaron and Hur came, and they held his hand high. How many people know, I mean, I think you just have to read this in Hebrew. We've got to put this someplace. But, you know, if you read that in Hebrew, that's the first time in the Hebrew Bible that the noun faith appears. Now, the word belief appears. But it says, when they held his hand steady, it actually says in Hebrew, they held it in faith. And, you know, the rabbis read that. The Jewish people begin to study that, and they say, Ah, oh, don't you see? It's not that there is some type of magic in holding the staff. It's the fact that the people believed in the one who had commanded Moses to hold the staff city. And because they had faith in God, Israel prevailed. And we can find uh, many times where faith is defined and applied. One of my favorite passages I think is very important for understanding Romans 9, 10, and 11, especially chapter 10 in Romans about faith and preaching faith. Romans 4 about faith is in a Jewish commentary of Scripture on the book of Exodus. This commentary is called the Mechilta. Mechilta means a portion or a part of a teaching. And these rabbis begin to write about the importance of faith. We think that in Judaism they had no concept of faith. But actually the foundation for our New Testament faith, believing and doing, acting on your faith, comes from ancient Jewish practice. Listen to what the rabbis said when they commented on the text when God worked this mighty miracle and he parted the Red Sea. You read that in Exodus chapter 15. I've read the song that they sing at the crossing of the Red Sea. We sing it in a lot of our congregations. The horse and riders thrown into the sea. Um, I don't know, I always tell people I'm a prison singer. I wish I could sing that for you. You know what a prison singer is, don't you? That's I'm behind bars and can't find the key. But uh, you know, I can make a joyful noise to the Lord. But when he's saying horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. We're celebrating that miracle. What we don't pay attention to is that in Exodus 14, 31, we also have the mention of faith. There it says that the people of Israel believed in the Lord and in Moses, his servant. The old rabbis said because they believed in the Lord, they could sing that song. But in order for them to sing the song, they had to believe. And in order for them to sing the song, they had the Holy Spirit rest upon them. So because they had faith, the Holy Spirit rested upon them. And because they had the Holy Spirit, they sang the song of praise that God had delivered them, horse and rider thrown into the sea, climaxing with that verse in Exodus 15, 18, and the Lord reigns forever and ever. God's kingdom is established. In that same context, the rabbis write in the same story, great indeed is faith 
before him who spoke, and the world came into being. For as a reward for the faith with which Israel believed in God, the Holy Spirit rested upon them. And so also you find that our father Abraham inherited both this world and the world beyond only as a reward for the faith with which he believed, as it is said, and he believed in the Lord. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Paul? How can we say that Paul's a Stoic philosopher? How can we say that he's influenced by the Greco-Roman Hellenistic mystery religions? Uh, Joseph Klausner, Hebrew University professor, commented, Intensive research into the life and teachings of Paul has brought me to a deep conviction that there is nothing in the teachings of Paul, not even the most mystical elements in it, that did not come to him from authentic Judaism. Faith is a foundation. Faith is something that we believe. Number four uh, of the definitions I want to share with you today is the word righteousness, tzedakah. Most of the time we hear that righteousness is something that is given to you, imputed to you, that you just received. It's true that that's how salvation is imputed to you. But you know, righteousness for Paul is a dynamic force that works its way out in the way that you live your life. He says, don't you know that if you surrender your body to the forces of wrongdoing, you become a slave of sin? you can also surrender your life and become a slave of righteousness. Hence, many times in the book of Romans, I've tried to translate this word, dikaiosune, with a way of righteousness, a way of righteous living. Sometimes you can't just use one word. Maybe if I was going to use one word, I might use the word uprightness, because you are upright with God. You're forgiven of your sins. You can't save yourself. You can't earn your salvation. We're not saved by works. But once we're saved, there's supposed to be fruit. There's supposed to be results. Number five, and this is the uh, last uh, word I'm going to use today. See, I'm kind of running out of time. Um, seems like the time goes by fast. Like I, oh, I just got so much I want to say. I, you just got to listen fast. I've got to talk faster or something here. I'm, I'm going to slow down. You know, uh, you just got to remember, uh, you know, if you end right, sometimes you get invited back, you know. Uh, <laughs> Remember that preacher, he's looking at his watch. He says, you know what that means, don't you? He says, not a thing, not a thing, right? You know? uh, of course, down in Texas, I've always heard of those longhorn sermons. Have you ever heard of a longhorn sermon, you know? It's where you have, you know how the longhorn is? have two points way out here, and what's in between? A lot of bull, you know? So, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, uh, I don't want to give you one of those longhorn sermons. Of course, about the worst I saw was in this uh, Baptist church I went to one time. I went into the men's restroom, and, you know, they have that hot air dryer for your hands. You press it and dry your hands, and I don't know who did it, probably the deacon or something. They wrote on there for a pre-recorded message of our pastor's last sermon, press here, you know, so... so uh, <laughs> So, uh, you know, <laughs> but, uh, 
But, but you know, I, I'm getting there. I've done my uh, four points here. Let Israel be Israel. Let the church be the church. Let God be God. Seek first the kingdom. And I've done my four translations. Just got one more with me. Number five, agape love. Love. And this word love, we really have to relate to the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in my heart because of the Holy Spirit's work. You know, I think if we would really let that love flow, we would have a different attitude toward the Jewish people and Israel. We'd have a different attitude toward all people. I think we'd need to have a different attitude to other Christians that disagree with us sometimes. You know, we need to learn to disagree agreeably and love one another. But it has to come from the work of the Holy Spirit, the love that is shed abroad in our hearts to others. I know I talked to a friend the other day. He says, you know, I, I always hated Jews. But, you know, I just had this experience with the Holy Spirit. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I changed my life. And I met a guy. He introduced me. His name was Corn. He said he was a Jew. And, you know, I can't believe it. I just hugged him. I says, I love you. He says, why did I do that? I says, well, you know, God's changing your heart. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit starts working on you. Now, a lot of things more have to change. That's what we're talking about. That's why we have to come to a conference. We have to learn. We have to study. We have to... Go back and study some of these things from theology. We need to work on improving translations of the Bible. We need to study other translations of the Bible. Let me just close with one last uh, story here that I think maybe illustrates what we mean by love and what it really means for the Holy Spirit to work in love. And it's actually a story from a Jewish source. This rabbi is walking along with his disciples that admire him. And as you know, usually you're asking questions, learning from one another. And the rabbi looks at his disciples and he says, do you love me? His disciples look at him and say, you're our rabbi, of course. You know that we love you. And then he said, well, tell me where I hurt I said, well, we don't know where you hurt. He says, how can you say that you love me if you don't know where I hurt? I think if we're really going to have that Holy Spirit love shed a brow out in our hearts, we need to understand the hurts of others, the hurts of the Jewish people, the hurts of others that we're ministering to, uh, the ones that maybe we don't like too much. God wants to change our hearts. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? And he can change our hearts. He can change our minds. We can be renewed in our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much.